Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Lion Hotel in the heart of Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Uh, honored to be joined today by Yannick Benjamin, sommelier and restaurateur, making hospitality accessible to one and all. Born into a restaurant industry family, Yannick always knew what he wanted to do for a living, but his life took a turn in 2003 when he was paralyzed in a car accident. Undaunted, he pursued a career in hospitality as a sommelier at New York institutions like Ledoux's Wines and the University Club. Uh, just last year, he opened his own restaurant, Contento, in East Harlem, uh, a uniquely accessible environment for both able-bodied and disabled staff and guests to explore his favorite food and drink. Yannick is an accomplished para-athlete as well as the co-founder of Wheeling Forward, a nonprofit enabling people with disabilities to see possibility where others see insurmountable obstacles. Thank you for joining us, Yannick. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Um, great. So for those of you joining us for the first time, the premise here is blessedly simple. We each have a bottle of wine to share with each other. We are celebrating uh, wines from the eastern seaboard today. Yannick has brought along a Cabernet Sauvignon heavy Bordeaux blend called Hoden Hill from Virginia's Glen Manor. Uh, I've followed suit with a different sort of Bordeaux blend, more ripe bank, more low heavy, from Trelevin Wines in the Finger Lakes. We will taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse in Yannick's honor. Uh, if you like the sound of what we're drinking, uh, the Hodden Hill from uh, our friends at Glen Manor will be available at Revelers Hour. Uh, that is Washington's premier uh, and only wine and pasta bar uh, directly across the street from uh, our line studios. Uh, sadly, the Meritage is vanishingly rare from the Finger Lakes. Um, you'll have to check for that one online. Uh, Yannick, pleasure again. Thank you, sir. A uh, few quick questions uh, about uh, your uh, life in restaurants and wine before we tackle uh, the Glen Manor. Um, what was it like? Uh, we just we previously established we had a nice little uh, you know kind of uh, riff about growing up uh, in New York and growing up in a neighborhood that no one can uh, afford outside of Russian prudoklats and celebrities now. But what was it like growing up in a restaurant family in the city? Well, you know, certainly uh, I had a bit of an atypical. Um, uh, I, 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 I grew up differently, certainly, from uh, a lot of other kids. I grew up uh, a few blocks away from Times Square. That was my backyard. Oh, wow. Uh, so five minutes away. Um, you know, I grew up in the 80s, late 70s. Um, this is during the height of the crack epidemic, um, which was pretty serious. This is not the Times Square that exists today for, no. for, for the sake of younger no. listeners. Yes. No, no. <laughs> the, the Times Square that most people are familiar with of today really drastically changed sometime in the mid-90s. Yeah, it's like Epcot Center Times Square. It's like Epcot Center, exactly. Um, perfectly described. And, you know, both my mother and father, they're from France, they're immigrants, um, and they came uh, here. Brittany, I believe, right? My dad's from Brittany, okay. exactly, and my yeah. mom is from Bordeaux. Oh, They wow. actually met in New York City. Okay. And so they made a career in hospitality, um, along with my uncles, my cousins. And so I guess it was just kind of clear that I wanted to be just like my dad and, and do everything that he was doing. Of course, 
being that they were immigrants, my mom and my dad, they would have preferred me doing a job where I'm in an office with air conditioning, something more civilized, nine to five weekends off. But they have been very supportive. Um, there was just something about the industry that really attracted me. Yeah. I remember every Sunday we'd have family over and they would talk about what their week was like. Um, even though it sounded very hard and they were working long hours, they were working traditional French hours of 12 to 14 hour days, doubles, six days a week. Um, there was something that really motivated me to, to want to be part of that industry. And then, of course, Cheers, uh, a great sitcom on NBC, was, was on. And I just was like, oh, I want to have a bar just exactly So you like wanted that. to be Sam Malone was the... I wanted to be like Sam Malone. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be Sam Malone. I wanted to have a Woody Boyd. I wanted okay. to have a Norm, yeah, Cliff yeah. Clavin. I just thought like, God, if I came to work to this every day, I mean, my life would be so perfect. Yeah. And so that was sort of my idea um, of that, but more elevated food, you know, yeah. focus on wine and cocktails, but Cause basically just like that. Your dad, your uncles were working at some like iconic yes. New York institutions. Yes. For sure. Uh, my dad spent the last 25 years of his career working at Lutes. Um, not Lutes here in D.C., no, no, no. but the original Lutes yeah, out yeah. Um, by Andre, Andre Soltner. For all the listeners, definitely check it out. So did my uncle. And my cousin Joel was the uh, chef de cuisine at Lutes. Wild. Um, yeah, so they, you know, certainly if you, actually if you come to Contento Restaurants, um, the restaurant that I have down in, in East Harlem, you'll go into the uh, bathroom and you'll see all these old menus of places where my uncles and my, yeah. my uh, father worked at. Do you have memories of, you know, visiting your dad, your uncles at work and, you know, being let behind the curtain for the sake of, you know, having a sense of all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and, and you know, kind of liking the taste that you got? Yeah, for sure. So um, I would visit my father um, every so often and he'd show me around, give me a tour of the restaurant. But that was it. I mean, it was very old school. You did not call my dad. You didn't go yeah. visit. He didn't go eat at his own, at the restaurants that he worked at. Um, but I do remember going there, you know, and meeting the staff and there was a certain smell to the restaurant and it just seemed all very exciting to me. On top of that, I had the, uh, you know, real blessing of having to spend my summers in France. So all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> having, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The month of July, I would be in Brittany, you know, during harvest. So all that, that smell of hay and I'd be on my aunt's farm. And then in August, oh, but we're, uh, are you drinking cider at this point? I'm drinking cider. I'm yeah, eating yeah. a lot of crepes, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of butter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot because of fresh jam. That's a very that's a very different like uh, you know food and drink scene than other parts of France. Very much so. I mean, Brittany's pretty much one of the few wine regions where there's no vines. I mean, yeah. of course there's some vines, but I mean, um, although they'll say Muscadet is actually Breton. But my mom, you know, and then I would spend um, the summers also part of the summer in Bordeaux and visiting wineries. And I always remember that smell of the cedar and yeah. and all those beautiful aromas of the fermentation and the wine. So you take all of that um, and I just have only fond memories. And it, I guess really I just wanted to live that moment for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. And so that's what I created. Yeah. Um, this world around me so I can be connected to it. Did you, you know, kind of your entree point for that was, you know, more front of the house, you know, um, the more, you know, beverage focused, more wine focused than, um, yes. you know, it, it was, you know, back of the house. Did you always know that, you know, you wanted to pursue wine and you wanted to be the maitre d' figure as opposed to the chef figure? 100%. <laughs> um, first off, you don't want me cooking for you, right? I'm a terrible <laughs> cook, all right? I love food. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I really appreciate the art of cooking, but yes, I'm not very good at it. And I'm, yeah, 
I just never really have made any effort, to be quite honest, yeah. it's very strange to say that I'm in this industry. But I, yes, you have to understand like in the 60s, 70s and 80s and maybe early 90s in New York City, um, the Metro D was the person. Yeah. That, that was, the, they weren't just a person greeting the people. I mean, they worked in the dining room. They organized the wine list. They took care of everything. It was well, a really big position. And in a lot of ways, they kind of superseded the chef, too. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, the, the, the chef was really back at the house. You never heard of the chef. You went to the restaurant because it was a scene. It offered a certain atmosphere and ambiance. And you were being greeted and you were being acknowledged by the Metro D. You know, good evening, good afternoon, yeah. Mr. Benjamin, all that kind of stuff. And he, he was the gatekeeper. You know? He was, oh my gosh, yeah. he was the gatekeeper. As a matter of fact, my uncle, Jean Benjamin, was the Metro D at La Grenouille. Yeah. The Americans called the, the Grenouille. Yeah. Um, still there. He was there for well over 30 years, retired at a very young age. I mean, yeah. um, and they, he had a nickname called the Tollboot, you know, <laughs> uh, just to kind of give you an idea. Uh, did people pay him off? Or? Yeah, of course, <laughs> you know. But back then, the, I mean, they were making crazy money. I mean, yeah. It was a different world. On top of that, also union, health insurance. It was a very different world for sure. Well, and you could have an enduring decade you know, long career at the same place. And, and 100%. Yeah. And, you know, there was a, a professionalization of service for the people in it that, you know, still, still very much exists. I, I don't want to pretend yeah. that doesn't exist. No, of course it not. just, um, it just has changed. And, yes. you know, like pretty much every industry, you know, in the restaurant world, no one's staying in the same place for decades on end. you know, uh, for sure. And, and, you know, I think, um, I, I'm sure, you know, you probably feel a certain wistfulness about that, you know? Yes. No, uh, no, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I worked at Le Cirque, which was sort of like one of the last, um, you know, Le La restaurants yeah, in New York City. Yeah, yeah. And I was working with people, like, that's what they did. These yeah. were, per, you know, career waiters. No tattoos. Uh, no, ta no, no, ta <laughs> <laughs> no tattoos. No tattoos. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's still, uh, there's actually a great episode of No Reservations dedicated to kind of like the forgotten dying New York and like those institutions. Mm, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I do, there are, there are other places recapturing that kind of magic and engaging hospitality in different ways. Right. But, you know, that way of dying is, is, is sadly, you know, kind of shuffling off a little, dining rather, is, 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 is shuffling off a little bit, is dying. Um, yeah. Very much so. Um, but I, I, you know, I hope that, you know, listen, I think it's so wonderful what's happening in the dining scene. Yeah. I mean, there's so many options, which you didn't really have yeah. back in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. So the diversity is certainly there. I do hope that we can still maintain some of those old school places because there's they're so important for the historical um, aspects of our restaurant industry. Yeah, and it, it certainly was not a diverse dining room. Um, and, you know, the, the cuisines represented were, you know, anything but diverse. I think the thing that those of us that love that scene feel wistful about is this sort of hospitality. The sense yes. of belonging yes. that yes. you felt um, yes. when you're in those places and the sense of ownership yes. that the staff took over your yes. ex experience there. And... You know, I think that's the, the secret sauce that, you know, we, we want to continue to, you know, be making in, in our industry. You know, just find ways to do it that, you know, invite more people in. 100%. Um, I completely agree with you. I mean, listen, uh, I just had some great meals out here in D.C. 
Um, I remember 20 years ago. I mean, it was there were no there were. I mean, there were like a, mostly steakhouses. It was, a, it was a different scene, yes. It was a different scene. And <laughs> yeah. now, my God, is it ever elevated? I mean, it is unreal. I mean, you can get all types of great foods from Ethiopian to French to Italian. It is incredibly diverse. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, um, we're drinking a couple wines from the East Coast uh, today, yes. which I'm irrationally excited about. <laughs> um, uh, what do you love about serving these wines? You have a whole section of the list at right. your restaurant dedicated to wines from the East Coast. What's, what's special about them, to well, your mind? First and foremost, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really proud to be from New York City. Most of all, I'm proud to be from Hell's Kitchen. Um, but my parents are French, right? Um, but I think that I have some kind of ethical duty. Um, if I'm going to talk about carbon footprint, you know, uh, sustainability, um, that it would be silly if I just had a list of wines that are that come from regions that are thousands of miles away from where I, I'm located or from where the restaurant is located. Why not have wines that are within, you know, a hundred mile, 200 mile radius. Yeah. And to be quite honest with you, um, I had already been visiting. I always, I took an interest in local wines, but when the pandemic happened, we were no longer able to travel. And so I really needed to get out and I wanted to just visit. And I said, well, I need to start exploring what's in our own backyard. And so I started visiting wineries in Vermont. Oh, cool. Um, I started visiting. Oh, did you hit up uh, Deirdre Hinky? She, uh, yeah, like a regista. Awesome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, all these really wonderful people. Oh, which is kind of, a, it's a wild scene too, because they're working with a lot of non-vinifera grapes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and yeah. I think that's where they're killing it. I mean, yeah. it's like yeah. their own little personality, their own yeah. little stamp. And I love it. These are alpine wines, but usually mostly hybrids, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, for, the, for those of you listening who are yeah, not familiar please. with hybrids, yeah, so that is, that is um, a subset of grapes that are native to the Americas that don't belong to uh, the species Vitis vinifera, which is the European vine that gives us every other wine. And uh, they are widely reviled for going into such brands as Manischewitz, um, which if you're 13 and at a bar mitzvah is just the best. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, if you have options, it's not. Um, and... Uh, so uh, there are a lot of people reappropriating uh, these these grapes um, for a variety of reasons, but environmental reasons too, because they are much more disease resistant than vinifera is domestically, and much more cold hardy in a place like Vermont. Well, yeah. for sure, yeah, yeah, definitely in Vermont, and I think they're just doing such a great job. And you know, of course, the Finger Lakes and the Hudson Valley, and people like uh, Wild Ark in the Hudson Valley just yeah. doing such a tremendous job. And, yeah, totally. Uh, Floral Taranis out in the North Fork, um, where they're just like you know, foraging wild apples and doing such a great job too. I really just have a great respect. So there's a lot of great things happening uh, right here in our own backyard on the East Coast. And why not feature it, but not feature it in the back of the list, you know, right on the front. So that's where I have it. It's like the second page oh, of the awesome. wine list. Yeah. Um, I, I get, I, I find myself getting some, somewhat frustrated about it. People, you know, we go through a lot of trouble at the restaurant to source local produce. And yeah. you know, there's something that you know, matters to people when they go to a grocery store. Sure. But then you, know, you go to your local Whole Foods, you go to the wine rack, and it's a bunch of stuff that Whole Foods, A, would probably never carry right. if, if you know, it was part of their produce program, just in terms of the level of manipulation that you know, goes on for the sake of bringing it to the bottle. But, but equally, people just like, lose sight of you know, locality um, yes. and, and provenance when it, when it comes to those things. And you know, wine is very much an agricultural product that you know, demands you know, consideration as such, and, and you know, deserves a place in the same breath as, you know, the produce that comes our way. 100%. I mean, it's liquid geography, right? Um, and in that glass, you get the essence of the human being, of the land, of the climate, the history, the anthropology. 
Um, and, and we certainly have that here in the East Coast. You know, I mean, obviously, in one hand, it's, there's, there is a, a, a pretty old uh, history with wine, but then I, it was broken up, obviously. And I think there's, there, there's just so many new and upcoming wineries and winemakers that are just doing such a great job. And, and they're getting better and better and better. And we, in many ways, as the gatekeepers, if, you, if I may, um, sommeliers, wine buyers at retail stores and all that, you know, we really need to do our research. You know, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to everybody that's working really hard on, the, on this land to really feature them. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's great to have all the Italian and the French and so on, but you've got to have a little bit of, the, uh, of, of love for our uh, local wines. Now, you um, talk about after your accident having this kind of religious moment with uh, 2000. Uh, Joseph Roti, Jevry Chambertin, um, yes. <laughs> um, that, your, that your dad brought you while yes. you were in your hospital. And, and that was kind of like, you know, a taste of the way back. Um, uh, do you find your tastes have changed? Do you find yourself kind of wanting to root for underdogs more uh, for the sake of wines than you did before? Gosh, that's, you know, has my palate evolved? For sure. I well, think, you were a young man. when. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, keep in mind. I had not tasted a glass of wine for like six months. Yeah. If I had my car accident. You, you could have had Franzi and it would have been the most amazing. Yeah, for sure. So imagine it's like, it's like when you're a kid for the first time when you eat a strawberry or a cherry, everything just explodes, and, right? And instead your dad leveled up and he yeah. gave you like not yeah. Franzi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's what really happened to me for sure. Um, it, I would say probably, you know, I definitely am much more into like tart, crunchy, you know, rhubarb, cranberry-based wines. I yeah. love that higher-altitude style of mm -hmm. wines. Um, and I love crisp whites, for sure. I love, I like vibrant, and I like energy behind my white wines. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like um, developed white wines too much. Some people love them. I respect oh, it, but it's not really my style. You, you want kind of like bright, fresh, Absolutely. sprightly. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you brought a wine to us from uh, Glen Manor. Um, yeah. This is a, their Hoder Hill. Um, so Cabernet Sauvignon blend. Um, how how long have you kind of been drinking these wines and uh, yeah. been familiar with Jeff White, the proprietor of this estate? Very much so. Um, Jeff White, along with his niece uh, Ashley, um, just the kindest uh, human beings. And so, you know, one, I, I really respect the work that they're doing. Um, but two, the fact that they're just great individuals, just like it's just a it's perfect, right? Yeah. And how I got to know them was, uh, this was when I was on this kind of crusade to like learn everything about the East Coast. I actually had lunch at Deidre Heakin, um, the owner of uh, La Garagista, and I told her how I planned this uh, Virginia wine trip, and she said, um, are you familiar with Glen Manor? I said, no, I've never heard of oh, them. Oh, Deidre turned you on to them, cool. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So then I, I, I emailed them myself. I said, I'm heading down to Virginia, I'd love to visit you. And I'm driving down there and I'm like, holy crap, these vines. Are, it's like a, a mini Cote Roti Hermitage, you know? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really cool. It's, um, uh, they're, you know, deep in the Blue Ridge. Yes. Um, they are very much mountain wines. Um, and uh, the, the, it's a family homestead that, you know, dates back to the earliest white settlement of um, uh, that right. corner of Virginia. And it's been a family for like five generations. Five generations. Ashley is the fifth generation. Yeah. And, um, but... I think the work that they're doing is incredible. I mean, when you, I mean, first off, I remember uh, Jeff driving us up to the top of the mountain. Um, we needed a four by four. There was no way to get yeah, up yeah. there uh, with just a regular car. And I was just so impressed with the passion, their desire 
to just make sure everything was so um, detailed. It's very meticulous. And I think that every year just gets better and better. Yeah. Um, these are wines that I, I have on my list. I have the 2014 uh, Hotter Hill on my list. And I also was pouring their Petit Mansang. I also have that on the list. They're 2017, their dry Petit Mansang. And I was also pouring it by the glass for well over nine months from the opening till just up until recently. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what, do you, what appeals to you about this you know, particular bottling? Well, listen, I think, that, um, I think that Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot really thrives here on the East Coast. It does, I think it does pretty well. I like the fact that he's able to get some optimal ripeness. It does get, it, he's in a site where it gets pretty hot, you know what I mean? So the ripeness is, definitely happens there, but yet it retains uh, the acidity, the balance. You get these earth tones to it. You know, Cabernet Sauvignon, for some parts of the East Coast can be a very challenging grape to grow, no doubt about it's a, it. It's a bitch, it's a bitch in Virginia because yeah. um, it uh, particularly needs well-drained sites. Yes. And that's not something we have a lot of in, right. in Virginia. And you know, to the extent that um, you know, Virginia growers work with it, I think mostly the uh, experiments are unsuccessful. Right. I think Jeff's an exception. I think Jim Law at uh, Linden's oh, an Jim exception. Uh, Rutger uh, teases out some some solid cab um, at RDV, but like uh, it it just it's a hard grape to do well here. For sure. I mean, I think you know. Again, going back to what you were just saying, he's on a, a very special site. It's gr I mean, granite dominant, um, so that certainly that definitely helps to be on a site like that. Um, but I love what they're doing with Petit Mansang. Yeah. Um, they're, they're playing around with some hybrids as well, too, that I think they're, they're killing it out here. Um, I've had some delicious Chambersin and all that stuff, um, grapes like that. So there's definitely the diversity and variety here. There's a lot of potential for growth here in this state. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's a younger winemaking region, so, um, you know, being a fifth-generation winemaker, certainly Jeff is part of, you know, I think to some extent the old guard, but, um, you know, the vines are, you know, in their second decade, it's third decade, the oldest yeah. ones. Um, yeah. um, you know, so the, the wine industry as such really didn't, you know, get a kick in the ass and, and, and establish a, a, a stronger foothold until the 90s. And, and you know, it's still developing a sense of itself in terms for of, sure. you know, what works and what doesn't. Obviously, that's a moving target for the yeah. sake of changing global weather patterns. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and I do think it's, it's interesting, um, you know, in talking to local winemakers, uh, you know, throughout the East Coast, um, pandemic was a boon to them to, to some extent because, you know, forced them to, you know, utilize their outdoor space. Sure. Um, and it inspired a lot of people to, you know, like yourself, you know, get a, get a better sense of what's in my backyard. Very much so. Um, I remember finally driving through Virginia wine country, first off, scenically how beautiful it was, how kind the people were. And I was also impressed by tasting some of these wines. You know, I, I visited a, a good amount of wineries, I, I like to think. Uh, you know, I've done RDV, I've done Glen Manor, I just re recently de did uh, Walsh Family Wines. Oh, I love them, Nate and Sarah um, are the best. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Of course, icon, the icon, um, Barbersville, right? One, yeah. of the, one of the OGs and, um, when it comes to Virginia wine history. Um, so definitely some um, Early Mountain. I also have Early Mountain on the list. Oh, they're great. Yeah. And, and I think, Overall, I think the quality is quite good. Um, and again, I, I, I firmly believe that it's only going to get better as time goes on. But I, I do think that like the Petit Mansang is definitely something very unique and very Virginian. Well, it's very special. And I think like uh, to the extent you're finding, you know, these old world analogs, like 
Jaron San, you know, kind of works for, you yes. know, it has a sign came in like bucolic, like rolling hill country. Like, yes. you know, you run up against the Alps and it becomes cartoonishly beautiful in a way that, you know, yes. Virginia, you know, no offense, just is not. But, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it's still, yeah, I, I, I am in camp Petit Man saying, um, but that's, that's, you know, that's another episode. Um, yes, yes, for sure. Uh, I, I equally adore, you know, wines like this because um, you have a winemaker that's not chasing you know, the ghost of Cali Cab, you know, because we can't, we can't, you know, we can try to make that here um, on the East Coast, but we can't, you know, we we have California, we don't need, we don't need to do, you know, those things. Um, And uh, this does see some new oak. Um, I think the, he, I don't know what the Elevage is on this particular vintage, but, but uh, typically it's like a, you know, like one third ish. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. 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 Um, and in all French and, um, you know, there's no overt new Oak signature that's, you know, um, distracting. Uh, it's an, and and it's a fundamentally elegant wine, which is what a Bordeaux blend should be. That's not what all Bordeaux is in the modern era, sadly, but you know, um, you know, I I like the elegance of it. No, no, for sure. And I, I have the 2014 on the list and it's something that I like to give blind to people and, I mean, it's showing so well. So these wines definitely have potential to age. Um, and, and again, um, to all the listeners, if you have not been to Glen Manor, it's a spectacular site. It's a great visit. Um, this is really a family-owned winery. It, it's a small operation. Um, if you really want to understand what it means to be a small family-owned farm winery, go check them out. Uh, that was great, great, great appeal. Good, <laughs> good branding. Uh, uh, so I have followed suit with uh, a wine from the Finger Lakes. So uh, I was, I was just, uh, just actually came back last night. It was just up in the in the Finger Lakes. Oh, very uh, cool. Uh, yeah, I like to like lend an inexpert hand at harvest, um, and uh, it's like some of your hands are the hands that no one wants on a on a winery actually doing the labor. But uh, I strangely enjoy it. Uh, at any rate, so. Um, this comes from uh, a, a younger uh, winemaker um, at a winery called Trelevin. So Trelevin, um, you know, because is another OG kind of like um, uh, Glen Manor. They're on, uh, so this is the Know Your Finger Lakes game, but they're on Cayuga Lake. So okay. um, uh, the three major lakes for the sake of winemaking are uh, Cayuga, Seneca, and Cayuga. Um, Cayuga has um, kind of a different, like, it's a different scene than, than Seneca. Kiuka. Uh, um, I, I wish this should be illustrated so you can all see the spellings here, but uh, is, is the historic center of the winemaking uh, industry there. Seneca is home to like most of the, you know, kind of prestigious labels. Yes. And, and Cayuga has this fun, like, you know, Cornell professors drinking on their off days, like aging hippies kind of, kind of yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, uh, Trelevin, uh, a family-owned winery. Um, and, uh, you know, very much like, uh, Glen, Glen Manor, um, and a younger winemaker, um, uh, here in Matt Dency, um, like, you know, very young man, uh, and he's a, a St. John's college graduate out of, out of Annapolis, um, and, uh, I had the pleasure of breaking bread with them when I was up there, and, uh, they work with, uh, Bordeaux varietals. Uh, now this is a different blend as such, so, mm. um, uh, uh, Sauv, uh, outside of a few exceptions, just does not fully ripen um, in the Finger Lakes outside of like once a decade. Um, so uh, the show ponies there tend to be Merlot and Cab Franc, which ripen significantly earlier uh, than, than Cab Sauve. And uh, this is more of a right bank um, Bordeaux blend. So uh, uh, right bank 
uh, Bordeaux being dominated typically by uh, Merlot because uh, they have heavier clay soils there. Um, and this is 48% uh, Merlot, 37% Cab Franc, and a scant 15% uh, Cab Sauve. Uh, for those of you playing along at home, the Hoder Hill um, is 68% Cab Sauve. So very different wines, um, but inspired by kind of the same uh, uh, tradition. Um, uh, how would you compare these two in the glass, sir? I mean, for me, it, it talk about terroir. Um, uh, you, you get the essence of the Bordeaux varietals in the glass for sure. Um, you get a bit this parasitic note to it. However, um, you know, the, the one on the left, which is the Trelevin, um, you get more of these tart red fruited. That's, yeah. what, that's where it's at. It's more medium bodied. Whereas the Glen Manor has more on this black and blue fruit kind of components to it. A bit more of this kind of uh, pronounced mushroom kind of note to it yeah. as well, and a bit more texture and weight. Um, they're both equally delicious, just two different styles, two different expressions, and really showing um, that they're a byproduct of of that sense of place. Yeah, and there's, there's like a lovable like um, kind of saline quality. Um, yeah, very uh, much so. uh, about. Um, that you're 11, uh, that, that I dig. Uh, I like this. This is a quote from Matt Densey. He said, uh, for some time, I've been bewitched by the notion of wines that haunt you, uh, wines that have a beauty and grace that eludes the drinker, but which can't seem to escape from either. Um, like Moonlight, uh, I would be very pleased to make such a wine. Uh, he's, uh, he's like under 30. He's a, a, a lovely young man. So I, I like the quote I find. Strange. I love that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I like that both of these wines are... Um, doing kind of East Coast things, so they're, they're yeah, very much. They're so, both yes. like medium-bodied wines. Um, you know, maybe the the Glen Manor, you know, medium plus. You yeah. know, the um, you know the the wine that Matt makes from Tre Eleven. You know, solidly medium-bodied. You know, uh, tipping the scales at thirteen percent alcohol, but with this like brat like bright acid streak. Um, oh, for you sure. Know, that, that makes them in, like insanely food friendly and you know very continental in the, yes. their own right. But I very think much so. I think very different than. Um, what the mass of men expect out of Cabernet Sauvignon? Um, yes. Do you I ever do you ever run into that when you're serving wines, you know, like the Glen Manor at your restaurant, and you know the headliner there is Cabernet Sauvignon, and it ends up in the glass, and you know it's not a monster. Do people right. do people like, you know, take up arms? I have to tell you, um, I have not really had that experience after they taste the wines. You know, maybe prior when I'm trying to show them, like, yeah, you should try this one from Virginia or from the Finger Lakes. or, And they're like, really? Are you sure? Yeah. They're very skeptical about it. Um, so it definitely requires some knowledge and hand selling. Um, but once they try it, I think they, they all kind of like go, wow, I'm, I'm blown away. I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. And I think the, the price justifies um, everything. And prices are, I think, for the most part, um, when we find wines on the East Coast, they're more than reasonable, and the yeah. quality over delivers for what you're paying for. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think that's always a hope. I, for sure. No, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to kind of switch into, um, you know, a different line of discourse. And uh, normally I wait till the end to uh, uh, share a poem, but I'm going to uh, kind of uh, use this bit of verse as, uh, you know, a, a segue of sorts uh, into... Um, you know, that different line. And uh, this is from a collection uh, called Beauty is a Verb, uh, the new poetry of disability. Uh, and uh, the poet is Vassar Miller. It's called The Common Core. Each man's sorrow is an absolute. Each man's pain is a norm. No one can prove and no one can refute which is the blacker coal or soot, which blows fiercer gale or storm. Each man's sorrow is an absolute. 
No man's sickness has a synonym. No man's disease has a double. You weep for your love, I for my limbs. Who mourns with reason, who overwhims? For self-defined as a pebble, no man's sickness has a synonym. Gangrene is fire and cancer is burning. Which one's deadlier? Toss a coin to decide, past your discerning. Touch the heart's center, still and unturning. That common core of the cross, you die of fire and I of burning. Mm. Um, so this is a bit of a segue into, you know, kind of your second life. I've, I've actually, uh, I've read a lot that people, um, you know, who are involved in a traumatic accident um, uh, and, you know, become paralyzed, you know, their, the date of their accident kind of becomes a second birthday of sorts. Yeah, that's funny that you say that, but that's true. Um, yeah. Actually, my um, anniversary or birthday, whatever you want to call it, um, is on October 27th. Yeah. So uh, just right around the corner. Oh, wow. Um, how do you how do you mark that? How do you feel about that you know, date every? Gosh, that's that's a really great question. Um, I try not to talk about it too much, and yeah. I think it's just a moment where I just kind of take a step back and yeah. and just take the time to think. And I, I like to be quiet that day if I can, and ideally if I could just be in a room and just kind of meditate all day and just really kind of think and you know you know mostly just thinking about how grateful I am. Yeah. All of the second chances that have been given to me, all of the people that surround me. Um, I'm here with you today because I've had this incredible love, care, and support for so many people. I mean, it's really hard to do things on your own, and let alone when you have a setback like that, when you're forever changed from a car accident like I was in, um, where you lose the, the, the use of your legs, um, it certainly can be incredibly hard and challenging and, and it's hard to get out of that hole. It's not an easy thing. Yeah. And so it's very easy from the outside looking in and just have that mentality of like, grab them by the bootstraps, you know what I mean? Um, but it's hard to do so if you don't have the resources to get out of that hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and not everyone um, has access to those resources, uh, sadly. A lot of people don't. Uh, you know, when I was in uh, rehab, I was there for a couple of months um, it just was amazing, and, and, and I was shocked to see that, um, you know, every day I had visitors. Mm -hmm. um, there was no doubt that at 2 o'clock in the morning, if I needed someone to get me a tuna sandwich, I'd find someone. You know, yeah. I, can, I had, but the, the other individuals that I'd become friends with, um, no one went, went to visit them. They had no idea where they were going to live because some of them lived in a five-story walk-up. So most of them were going to nursing homes. I mean, oh, I, I didn't it, even thought about that in New York. I mean, yeah. it's not the most, um, you know, no. wheelchair accessible city in the world. No, it's certainly not. It's, it's certainly an old city, right? Yeah. Um, the architecture is incredibly old. We don't do a great job as far as, you know, um, doing modifications and keeping up with what's current with the American Disabilities Act. So there are a lot of challenges for sure. Um, unlike DC, where I think you know there's a lot, accessibility is like left and right. I'm like blown away all the time when I come. It's a here. it's a younger city, and I think you know being um, the nation's capital, you know, is buyed a lot of you know kind of conversations sure. about accessibility. Uh, equally, you know, the country. I think people underestimate the, the extent to which the country is transformed by the American with Disabilities Act. Um, for sure. And, um, you know, just given that there's a lot of new construction here, you know, people don't... Yes. Legally, they have an obligation to, you know, be right. compliant. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I completely agree with you. So, you know, for sure, of course, life-changing, no doubt about it. And, and what I'm simply trying to do is, you know, just talk to 
and bring awareness to our industry that people with disabilities do want to work, that people with disabilities can bring a lot of value to your establishment, right? Um, and that I, I fully understand that sometimes, you know, making that financial investment in accessibility can be very challenging if you're a small business or you're in an older building and it can be complicated. But one thing that we can certainly practice without a doubt is social accessibility. And that's something that we can all do. Um, you, know, you know, having seminars and hosting people with disabilities to come in and talk to your staff and really just, you know, doing proper um, etiquette 101, practicing etiquette 101 with people, you know, of the blind and low vision community, people that are deaf and hard of hearing, people that have autism, people that have MS, people that are full-time wheelchair users. Um, it seems daunting, but it really isn't, you yeah. know. Um, what kind of, and this is a lifetime ago, but, you know, do you have a sense of your younger self before your accident and the kind of awareness that you had of disabled people in your space? Well, yes, that's, yes, um, I love that question. So my grandfather went blind um, in his 50s, uh -huh. and then I have a cousin that was born blind. And this is a funny story, but probably two years prior to my car accident, uh, my mom calls me to tell me that my cousin Guy, um, while working on the farm, fell backwards, you know, in the barn and uh, snapped his back and is now paralyzed. Oh, wow. So you had another... Yeah, I have another cousin in France, yeah, who's, who's paralyzed. Same, same level of injury. It's pretty oh, wow. wild. And I remember telling my mom, you know, here I was, six foot two, six foot three, strong guy, young, healthy. And I was, a, I was very much an optimist. And I said, well, um, does he have the use of his upper body? And she was like, yes. And I said, well, he's going to be fine. He's going he's gonna to kill it. He's going to do great. And yes, he did kill it. Yes, he's doing great. But of course, I didn't fully understand all of the other situations or issues that comes with being spinal cord, right? And some of the social challenges. Yeah. Um, so I did not take that into account. And actually, the night of my car accident um, in the restaurant, we had two steps to get up to another part of the dining room. I had to help uh, an older gentleman who was on his wheelchair up those two steps. Oh, and, wow. And I just remember like, God, oh, this, you know, why did you just build a ramp here? Like, what was that? But again, it wasn't something that I was practicing yeah. um, for sure. But I do remember all of those situations. Yeah. And of course, now being a full-time wheelchair user and having to deal with like, for example, I said, oh, last night I had, a, I had a, a thing that I needed to do, a conference. And so I said, I love going to the Lincoln Memorial. It's, I think it's like such a magical place. Oh, yeah. It's real peaceful. Well, my favorite uh, like recommendation for people visiting the city is uh, hit the Lincoln Memorial at sunset. It's like oh, uh, it's, it's, the people watching is amazing. You, you see the city spread out before you in a way that's not, you know. Uh, yeah. It's so magical. And so whenever I'm in D.C., I just like to go there on my own. and just awesome. kind of like just chill out and meditate and all that. Of course, this is like my third time going back and the elevator is broken. Oh. And I'm just like, okay, I mean, it was fine. But anyway, I'm just giving you an example. Well, I feel like, I feel like, you know, you're, I'm sure, you know, in like worse moments, especially like, you know, trying to ride the subway in New York, but it feels like they're just like a million little slights like that, you know. For sure. Or even like, you know, uh, wanting to use the bathroom in a certain place doesn't have an accessible bathroom. So now I've got to figure out where I'm, I've got to, you know, do my business yeah. and all that. Yeah. And, and listen. I want to make this very clear. Um, I am so incredibly privileged in the sense that I could have had this injury and lived in a country like Guatemala or in Haiti, um, where you know I, I can't even imagine what life is like being a full-time wheelchair user or having a disability in places like that. Cannot be easy. Yeah. And here, yes, we can do better for sure. But I'm very blessed that 
I'm in a situation where I have a wheelchair that's designed to my specs, to my body type. Um, there's not a lot of places in this world that, that, that have that opportunity. I mean, and just to give you perspective, even up to now, the average lifespan globally with someone with spinal cord is anywhere from about 15 to 20 years. From the, time, from the time of injury. Yeah, because they don't have the resources. They're not getting the right durable medical equipment and all that kind of stuff. So if you're like from a country, you know, um, in Africa, you know, or some part of the third world, you're not getting the durable medical equipment. You're not getting the proper seating. Yeah. Um, you get pressure sores. You die from these things. These yeah. are real serious situations. So yeah, the, the, the lifespan is quite small. But here in a country like this or, you know, in Western Europe or, or other places like Japan, um, you know, you do have those resources, so I can pretty much live uh, a normal life, uh, a life expectancy like a non-disabled person. What kinds of things have you done at Contento to open up, you know, the dining experience to people, you know, from all walks of life? Well, first off, I want to say one thing. I had dinner at Reveler's Hour, right? <laughs> and it was, and I mean this, it was absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm glad you did. And honestly, as far as accessibility there, it was Perfect. Oh, thank you. I mean, we have the we have the luxury of you know it's a it's a new new construction. This this space is actually kind of cool, man. Like uh, oh, so it's Yannick, incredible. To your well, no, to your the frontage there. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but is this classic old French bakery called uh, Lavignon Ferrer? Okay. Uh, and, and please excuse my French accent, which is yeah. total bollocks. But no, uh, no, no. Uh, Lavignon Ferrer was like the patisserie. If you were like on Embassy Row and wanted birthday cake or whatever, that's where you went. Um, like for decades, from like you know, the 20s or 30s through the 60s and 70s. And um, wow. so the frontage of the building is historic, which is the only historic thing about it, which is, which is why, wow. it, you know, it's as, you know, uh, accessible a place as, as it is. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I've worked at restaurants that, you know, are in older buildings and are, are not that. And I've had the experience of, you know, um, carrying guests in wheelchairs up, you wow. know, stairs and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and sure. um, you know, you can introduce a level of, you know, warmth and hospitality to that experience, but, you know, the mere fact of it, you know, is intimidating and, you yes. know, um, you know, in, invites people out, you know, on, on the face of things. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, uh, like I said, I mean, I just, I, I went there, the tables were high, my knees weren't bumping up. I mean, I just, it was, and I'm not saying this because it's you, but I thought like, honestly, if I had to design a restaurant and I had that capability of something big like that, I, I would have designed it exactly like that. Thanks, I, mean, I think it's so perfect. Um, the one thing that we have done, we, we lowered the bar, you know, so. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, next time if I, if I do have the, 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 you know, the, the blessings of having to open up another restaurant, I would like to make the entire bar, bar just counter seated. So it's just a, a portion. It's just a portion. Huh. The reason why is because I was limited with uh, financial could, resources. Yeah. You have to, then, then you have to like create special refrigerators. But, but like the, like you can't sit at a normal bar. No, I can't. Yeah. I, so, so you and I go go to a bar. You're going to be sitting on the stool, and I'm looking up at yeah. you. And then, I, if we decide to eat at the bar, then I've got to take the plate and put it on my lap. You know yeah. what I mean? Here now, you and I, we can go to a bar together, sit eye to eye, and like we're now we're both on equal footing, right? How have uh, able-bodied guests respond to that? Oh, they love it. Yeah. I mean, actually, they the one thing that they all say to me is that they feel like it's very intimate because when they go, there's like a they feel like there's like a wall sometimes between themselves oh, yeah. and the, the bar. But here it's all open. You see the whole bartender and all that. So there's less of that wall in between that. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those weird, like, <laughs> I think it's just something you take for granted, you know, in the restaurant yes. game. Like, why is the bar higher than the rest of the tables? Yes. 
It just is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just is, yeah. For but, sure. But yeah. like, and, and I mean, historically, that would have been because, you know, you wanted to fit more equipment and stuff behind it. But yeah, like, so for sure. That's, that's not, you, I mean, that's a design challenge that's like pretty, probably pretty easily surmountable. Um, for sure. Um, and, and, and again, I, in the most perfect world, I would have done the entire bar. Yeah. But having to do that would have required, you know, getting specially made refrigerators and, and, and equipment to, yeah. so it can fit the, the counter seating. Um, but maybe in the future, I, 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 you know, I will have the good fortune to be able to do that. And that, that's sort of the objective. We also have adaptive flatware, um, which is really important for, what, yeah. is, what is that? Yeah. So it's for people who are quadriplegics or people that are, have limited, uh, hand use, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe they have a serious neurological condition and all that. And so here, instead of, you know, just giving them just a fork and a knife, they can actually take this adaptive flatware. There's a little loop. It's hard to you can all look it up. It's called a dining with dignity is the name of the company. Yeah. You just take your thumb, put it in the loop, and now you have your fork, and now you're able to eat uh, a lot oh, easier. Heard. Same thing with the knife now, because you really can't grab, you know, yeah. the handle of it. And so we things of that nature. Of course, making sure that all our menus have a QR code. We have menus in Braille, um, things of that nature. We make sure that we have. Uh, guest speakers from all different types of communities to come in and speak. I recently, just before um, the, the fourth quarter started to get us all ready and motivated, um, I had different speakers on Zoom come in and speak about their personal experiences and to talk about the do's and the don'ts of when dealing with their particular disability. Yeah. And so that's really helped with the staff and also gives them the confidence needed when having to deal with them. I mean, I feel like... Uh Dining at you know making the dining room approachable for for guests is is kind of one one hurdle. Um, what are the hurdles for opening up careers in hospitality for you know people with with disabilities? That feels like a like a higher bar to clear. As far as hiring people with disabilities, or, or you know creating space for them in the uh, yeah yeah in, uh, for sure. So listen, there's no doubt about it that that we're in an industry which can be incredibly hazardous, right? Well, and physically, you know. Oh, physically, yeah. no doubt about it. Um, you know, fire, hot oil, sharp objects, very tight space, yeah. fast moving. There's no doubt about it. Um, however, you can't tell me that we couldn't hire um, someone who's a full-time wheelchair user or someone hard of hearing where they're working more as like a food and beverage director mm -hmm. or banquet events, you know, um, working concierge, front desk, things of that nature. Um, do I think that we can have certain people within our community working as a waiter and server? Absolutely. You know, I think people that have autism, Asperger's, ADHD, they very much have a place. I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. We also have to be more open-minded. We have to do a better effort in telling when we hire someone also, just because they see someone and they're not on a wheelchair or they don't have a guide dog, don't assume that they may not have a disability, but instead say, are there any reasonable accommodations that we can help you with or yeah. that we should be aware of? And a lot of times people that you perceive as being non-disabled um, don't want to speak about their disability because they're afraid of being judged yeah. or, or, or being looked down upon and, and that's a problem in itself. And we need to get rid of that stigmatization. We should have these individuals, what I call invisible disabilities, be able to speak and be able to say, hey, um, if you don't mind, I need 20 minutes um, you know, between shifts because my brain is on overload and it just gives me time to like reset. And so these are the conversations that we need to be having. You know? and, and, and these are simple accommodations that can be really made. Yeah, and I, I think historically in the restaurant industry, you know, there's been kind of one treadmill that everybody's on, you know, that is the treadmill that your dad and your uncles were on. Correct. And, you know, 
uh, it didn't stop, you know, and it didn't matter who you were, you know, if, yes. if, if, if you, if you fell down on it, then, you know, fuck you, you know, you know, you belong in a different industry. And, and I, I think one of, um, you know, the, hopefully the, uh, happy accidents of, you know, this, this pandemic reset that we've been in the midst of is, is a rethinking of that. And, um, you know, a rethinking of how we can, you know, create space in, in this industry for, you know, everyone. People with disabilities, they want to work, you know, and I know a lot of them that want to work in hospitality. They just don't know how to. And I think that we in the industry, we can create internships, paid internships, have them come work so they have some kind of experience, build the experience so they don't have the pressures of just starting a job straight away. Like, let's, let's help them. Let's help them, you know, evolve, right? Yeah. And provide them with the resources so that when they eventually do get a job that's actually paying them a respectable salary, that they're able to crush it and kill it because they've been given all the tools necessary to succeed. I think that's really um, important. I think the other thing is, listen, 61 million Americans that have a disability, that's a huge number. And that's a number that we can't ignore. Um, so why are we at, in the industry where we're, right now we're in a, a, a labor crisis, right? We're, we're yeah. like having... Like, there, there's, uh, there's, I think it's less than 20% of people in America that have a disability that are actually financial, financially secure. So there's 80%, right, of people that are like, yeah, I want to work. And I'm sure there's a place where you can find in your restaurant, because restaurants are 24-7, right? Yeah, like yeah. nonstop. That there's a place in your restaurant and well, they'll give 100%, you know? Yeah. There's so much talent that's not being used and not being facilitated within our community. So yeah, it feels like a resource optimization problem. Yes, yeah. for sure, yeah. Ab absolutely well said. Um, for the sake of the language that we deploy, um, you know, for people in your perception, it, it strikes me that like, you know, this language of able and disabled is itself, right. you know, kind of, you know, problematic, uh, you know, for, yeah. um, you know, the, the sake of the people in the midst of it. And, and you know, uh, it actually obviously goes much deeper than that. Like, yeah. uh, um, uh, I was, you know, considering poems to share from this volume, Beauty is a Verb, and, and um, uh, I showed Yannick another one called uh, The Poet of Cripples, yeah. um, which was a beautiful poem, and it kind of reappropriates that word in, sure. a, in, a, in a different way. But, you know, yeah. that, that language is out there. Is there, sure. you know, a way in which, you know, you think, you know, people should be thinking about and talking about, you know, people with quote-unquote disabilities differently? Well, first off, um, again, I just said the number, right? That means 20, uh, 61 million Americans, 25%, right? That's a huge number, which means that if you're in a group of four people, right, um, don't assume that the people that you're talking with don't have a disability, right? You know, sometimes we have a tendency to maybe make fun of, you know, the, 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 the stuttering thing. Um, well, someone might have a speech impediment. I had a speech impediment when I was younger. I had to go to speech therapy for five years. I think using um, outdated terminology, just like you said, cripple, gimp, you know, handicap, you know, just simply using a person with a disability is fine, right? But I think everything has to do with intent, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm working with you, you know, something like that can be really hurtful would be like, can't you go a little faster? Um, you know, things of that nature. So I think being really mindful, and I think we should be mindful to every single one, not, the, not just people with disabilities, but to everyone, right? Because language can be very hurtful and it has a lasting effect, right? So again, uh, being aware of, of people's situations and taking the time and humanizing it, right? And the moment you humanize a situation, um, things change drastically, right? I tell people like, you know, if you're, uh, 
uh, you're on the train, someone pushes you and they don't apologize. Instead of saying, well, what a jerk, why don't you say, well, maybe they're having a really bad day, they're distracted, maybe they just found out that their mother, their father passed away, who knows? If you take that, those moments you know, and apply them to your everyday life, you'll, you'll lead a very uh, peaceful life, much more than just trying to like, you know, you know, because anger doesn't solve anything. You know, lashing at someone doesn't solve anything. But talking it out, and really talking it out to yourself. And sometimes I always say, two ears, one mouth, right? So it's better to just listen, this still, and then maybe, maybe you might have to say something because yeah. we all have to advocate. I get that. But I think just being aware of like little things like that, you know, or I mean, I get like the comments every day, like, you know, oh, I'm going to give you a speeding ticket. I'm like, oh God, like I haven't heard this before. <laughs> like if you're going to say that's something. A, that's, make, that's the tire joke. Yeah. If you're going to make like a joke, like at my expense, like please make it good. Make, it an, make an original joke. Please. Make an original <laughs> joke. But uh, I would say generally speaking, I think people are quite, are pretty good. You know, um, I, I'll say a very quick story. And I've told this a couple times, but um, the, you know, a few weeks ago there was a waiter. He's like pouring um, ice water into her, the, the the young woman's cup in our restaurant, and it spilled all over, and it spilled on her. So ice water, oh my God, she, she you know, it's all over. It's quite a bit, and she gets all the chills and all that, and she's shocked by it, and she was extremely upset. And I went up to the table. I I tried talking to her. I was trying to be as reasonable as possible, and she just kept saying. Well, now it looks like I peed on myself. <laughs> and she said it like three or four times. And it really was a trigger for me by the time she said it the fourth time because I said to myself, well, you know, well, for me, I'm paralyzed from the waist down. You know, I don't have control of my bladder. Yeah. You know, it's something that's like, it's been a real battle, right? Yeah. And well, so, that's, that's probably, it's probably a social fear for you. Yeah, oh, for, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it took me a long time to get over it. So then I responded. I, you know, I didn't lose my cool. I just said, well, at least you have control of your bladder. <laughs> and so she, she, you know, didn't say it. She was kind of taken back, you know. Um, I think she understood what I was trying to say. And then I rolled away going, oh, God, I shouldn't have said that. And, you know, what I should have done was she's having a bad day. Maybe she, she got fired. Who knows? And I made it about me, and I, it should have been about her. Um, but anyway, what I'm saying is that, you know, on the flip side of things, you know, probably her talking that way to, to someone who is a full-time wheelchair user. Now, she probably didn't know that, but yeah. I, again, we have to be aware of, of the things that we say to everybody. Well, honestly, like I will say, you know, you're not always your best self in those moments where you're your yes. truest self in service, but those yeah. are also some of my favorite moments, you know, you know where you, you just like, you're like, fuck this, I'm keeping it real. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, true story. Uh, 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 well, thank you for sharing it. Uh, last question for you, sirs. Uh, so much of the, the language around disability focuses on loss, you know, I lost the use of my legs, yes. you know, um, I lost something. Uh, what do you feel like you've gained? Well, I, listen, um, I use my brain in ways that I don't think I would have ever used it. Um, I troubleshoot a lot better. So, you know, for example, if I'm on a train station like Columbus Circle and now the elevator's broken, instead of getting frustrated or panicking, now I, now I think, okay, what train can I get on that's gonna get me to the nearest station? You know, things of that nature. And so, and of course, I, I, I can't rely on certain parts of my body. Mm -hmm. So then I've got to like really use my brain in the best possible way and take advantage of it. Um, I also think that I, I've taken such a different approach to life. Um, I would say that prior to my accident, you know, um, I was an optimist. I, I definitely didn't take anything for granted. I can, I can assure you of that. But I, I would find myself in situations where I would get easily frustrated and vexed. 
And yes, it still happens now, but at a much better le level. I have, you know, I have really strong emotional regulation. Um, and I realize that I try to live in the present moment. I try not to look, in, look behind me. I try to learn from the past, from my mistakes. But, you know, I, yes, of course, what I'm doing now, I'm trying to build so I can have a secure future. But I know that tomorrow may never happen. So I'm just trying to enjoy every moment that, I, that I've been given right now. Oh, brilliant. That's a good lesson for us all. Yeah, um, Yannick, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Yannick Benjamin. Um, the restaurant is at Contento NYC. Um, the nonprofit that I have is at Wine on Wheels NYC. And we did uh, two Wine on Wheels here in D.C. a few years ago, but then the pandemic happened. I'm hoping to bring it back here because I absolutely love the Washington, D.C. sommelier community. <laughs> I love everything about this city. It's incredible, and I can't wait to come back. Um, and uh, you're opening a retail outlet as well, aren't you? Yes. I'm, the name of the retail store is called Beaupierre, and it's going to be in the building that I was born and raised That's at. fucking awesome. That it's it's. <laughs> Unbelievable. My parents live right above the store, and the name Beaupierre means beautiful rock, beautiful stone, well, you know, soil, but it also means beautiful Pierre, which is the name of my father. Oh, that's adorable. Um, uh, thank you again. Uh, all of you listening, please uh, find uh, Yannick, whether uh, in the flesh uh, in East Harlem or uh, soon to be Hell's Kitchen or online. Uh, thank you so much for listening as ever. Uh, so, a reminder you'll be able to find uh, the Glen Manor. Um, uh, Meritage Blend at Revelers Hour. If you're interested in giving it a taste, uh, you can find us at Universe in a Glass on the gram. Uh, thanks for listening and stay thirsty for more of the Universe in a Glass. <laughs>